open this morning by reading from Psalm 79, and then, uh, then we'll, we'll pray and we'll begin. So Psalm, Psalm 79. O oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you, and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitations. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us, Let your compassions come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us, and forgive us our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants, which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. To all generations we will tell of your praise. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your sovereignty and your control over all all things in the world, both those that are happy and those that are sad and destructive. Lord, we we thank you that though you discipline your children for their sins, nevertheless, you cause all things to work together for their good. And Lord, we thank you for your kindness and grace and your plan of salvation and preparing a a nation and calling them to yourself, a nation in which you would ultimately bring the Messiah. And we thank you for your preservation of that people, both through their days of godliness and their days of ungodliness, their days when they were self-governing in the land that you gave to them, and even in the days when they suffered under uh, the oppression and exile and overlordship of others. Lord, we praise you for the fact that you have worked out all things to bring us a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So uh, so last week, uh, we uh, kind of looked broadly at the... Yeah, yeah, I'll take that. Does that, does that help? Or... Okay, all right, we'll, we'll do that. Um, so last week we uh, began looking at the, uh, at the Apocrypha and kind of, uh, kind of gave a, a rough overview of uh, kind of the way that uh, the Protestants had historically viewed it as opposed to, to Roman Catholics, the uh, issue of its canonical status. And uh, then we, uh, we looked a little bit to the, the period of the Maccabees, looking in Daniel chapter 8 at the, uh, the prophecy of, uh, of this this one who who uh, to rage against uh, against the temple and the uh, the worship of God and that being ultimately Antiochus Epiphanes the held and fought and 
Uh, and so this morning, what I'd like to do is to uh, look a little bit more in depth at uh, the period between Alexander the Great and Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and we will do that by looking to, uh, to Daniel chapter 11, because even though uh, the history of these things is not given to us in Scripture, nevertheless, the prophecy of these things is given to us in Scripture. So, First uh, Maccabees chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, uh, give us kind of the bookends. We have, uh, we have Alexander the Great, and then we have Antiochus Epiphanes. And so let me, just, let me just read that, but for the bulk of our time this morning, we're going to be in Daniel 11, looking at, uh, at the, the various uh, rulers and the, the fighting that, that took place in the lead-up to Antiochus Epiphanes. So uh, the text of First Maccabees uh, chapter 1 uh, says this, After Alexander, the son of Philip, the Macedonian, who came from the land of Kittim, had defeated King Darius of the Persians and the Medes, he succeeded him as king. He had previously become king of Greece. He fought many battles, conquered strongholds, and put to death kings of the earth. He advanced to the ends of the earth and plundered many nations. When the earth became quiet before him, he was exalted and his heart was lifted up. He gathered a very strong army and ruled over countries, nations, and princes, and they became tributary to him. After this, he fell sick and perceived that he was dying. So he summoned his most honored officers who had been brought up with him from his youth and divided his kingdom among them while he was still alive. And after Alexander reigned 12 years, he died. Then his officers began to rule in his own place. They all put on crowns after his death, and so did their descendants after them for many years, and they caused many evils on the earth. From them came forth a sinful root, Antiochus Epiphanes, the son of King Antiochus, he had been a hostage in Rome, and he began to reign in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. And so this is uh, approximately 175 B.C. or so that, uh, that Antiochus Epiphanes begins to reign. And so we have this, this period of, uh, of over 100 years between, uh, between Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes. And again, Scripture does not give us that history, but it does give us the prophecy of these years. And so let's look then uh, to Daniel chapter 11. So we'll read, uh, we'll read Daniel 11, verses 1 through 35. And so this is, uh, this is the angel speaking uh, to Daniel here. In the first year... Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen... His kingdom will be broken up and parceled out to the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion, 
His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up, along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to this very fortress." king of the south will be enraged and will go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south, and the violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come cast up a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not be able to stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes up against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with, with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. In his place a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue, the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered. And also the prince of the covenant, after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. 
and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army, so that the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for in the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time he will return and come into the south, but this time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him, and therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. But it is still to come at the appointed time. So, what are we, what are we supposed to make of this? Well, if you've, uh, if you've got one of the handouts, I'd encourage you to flip over to the, uh, to the back side. And this gives us kind of a, kind of a rough sketch of, of what's going on here in, uh, in Daniel 11. And so, uh, and so, what we what we have, if we can kind of kind of bookend the portions of Daniel eleven that, that we've just read, we we start out in the first year of, of Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede is is in power at the same time as uh, Cyrus the Persian, and so uh, and so Cyrus, of course, is the one who allows the Jews to return uh, to Jerusalem, and so and so. The, the period of King Cyrus is, is in view at, at the beginning of Daniel 11. Of course, Daniel is alive during the, uh, during the reign of Cyrus when, uh, when Babylon falls to the, the Persians. And so that's, that's one bookend. And then down in, uh, say, from verse 21 through verse 35, we're dealing with Antiochus Epiphanes. And we have this, this language about him setting up the abomination of desolation, doing away with the, with the regular sacrifice, and so on. And some of that uh, was... Uh, similar to what we saw last week in, in looking at, at Daniel chapter eight in regard to the prophecy there against him, and so and so let's let's kind of let's kind of walk through uh, walk through this uh, section of, of Daniel eleven, and so uh, we start uh, up in verse one, the first year of Darius the Mede, and uh, we are told there, behold, three kings are going to arise in Persia. And a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire 
against the realm of Greece. And this, uh, this fourth king uh, seems to be Xerxes. He's, uh, he's on, the, on the list there. Uh, and he reigns over the Persians uh, from 486 to 465 B.C. And indeed, uh, Xerxes did go to war against the, the Greeks and fought against them. And it didn't, uh, didn't turn out too well for him. Uh, he suffered a large naval defeat at the Battle of Salamis in 480 B.C. And then verses 3 and 4 were told about this, this mighty king who will arise. And then as soon as he has arisen, we're told that his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out to the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants nor according to his own authority, which he wielded. And again, this... Uh, ties in with what we saw last week in, in Daniel chapter 8 about the, the coming of, of Alexander the Great. He conquers a large swath of the world, and then after his death, he has no successor. Eventually, it's parceled out to the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. You have these four kingdoms uh, rising up. And that's the, the same thing that we're seeing here. And, and as... Uh, as the, the chapter goes on, beginning there in, in verse 5, we start seeing references to the, the king of the south, and then we have other references to the kings of the north. And so this is in reference to two of the four dynasties. And so if your point of reference is Jerusalem or the Holy Land, then Syria would be to your north, and that's where... Uh, the Seleucids are reigning, and so these are referred to as the, as the kings of the north. And likewise, if you're in uh, Israel or, or in Jerusalem, to the south would be Egypt. And so this is the, uh, the, lines of the, of the line of the Ptolemies, who are the kings of the south. And so there in uh, verse 5, we're told about this... Uh, this king of the south who grows strong. And this is Ptolemy I, uh, Soter, uh, who reigns from 323 to 285 B.C. This man had been one of Alexander the Great's generals, and he is said to grow strong uh, along with one of his princes. And uh, this prince or commander is a fellow named uh, Seleucus Nicator, and... He is said to have been one of Alexander the Great's lesser generals and was appointed as a uh, satrap of Babylon in 321 B.C. and was forced out by another general named Antigonus in 316. And then at that time, Seleucus I goes to serve under Ptolemy the uh, I there of Egypt. And then in 312, Antigonus uh, gets defeated and Seleucus... Uh, returns and then takes control of the area over which he had formerly been in charge. And this marks the beginning of the, the Seleucid era and the Seleucid dynasty. And he increases in power and eventually controls Babylon, Syria, and Media. And this is, uh, in terms of size, this is going to be the largest of those, those four kingdoms that spawned from Alexander the Great. And then in verse 6, we're told of an attempted marriage alliance between these two kingdoms. And uh, this was a marriage alliance gone bad. If you look there at the text, um, we are told that the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement, but she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain 
with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. And uh, what this is in reference to is uh, to Ptolemy II, uh, Philadelphus, who reigns in Egypt from 285 to 246 B.C., and he enters into a treaty with the grandson of Seleucus I, a man named Antiochus II Theos, who reigns from 261 to 246 B.C. And part of the, part of the arrangement, part of the alliance, was that Ptolemy's daughter, the daughter of the king of the south, a woman named Bernice, was to marry Antiochus II Theos, the king of the north, to carry out this, this peaceful arrangement, in the words of verse 6. Problem was, though, that Antiochus II was already married to a lady named Laodice or Laodicea. And uh, the plan was for uh, Antiochus II simply to divorce his wife, Laodicea, and uh, to marry Bernice to carry out this peaceful arrangement. This sounds like, sounds like a disaster waiting to happen, right? And indeed it was. The understanding between uh, in this, uh, this peaceful arrangement was that the, the offspring of Antiochus II and Bernice was to be the heir to the throne of the, the Seleucid dynasty. And then a few years later, after the death of Ptolemy II, Antiochus II, Theos, decides to, to go back to his first wife, Laodicea, and uh, to uh, put uh, Bernice away. And uh, after he does this, Antiochus II dies shortly thereafter, and uh, there's speculation that his first wife, Laodicea, may have, in fact, poisoned him uh, to... Uh, I guess, take revenge on him for, for putting her away. And then she goes after the second wife. She goes after Bernice and the child that she had had with Antiochus II. And so Bernice and her child are murdered. And roughly the second half of verse 6 spells this out. But she, that is Bernice, will not retain her position of power, nor uh, will he remain in his position of power. And so uh, the first wife's son, Laodicea's son, uh, Seleucus II, uh, Chalcinus then becomes the successor of the uh, of the Seleucid throne, and so uh, so things are 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 getting ugly, and they continue to be ugly in the relationship between these two kingdoms. And then uh, verse seven speaks of one of the descendants of her line. It could be also translated as a branch from her roots arising in his place and coming and entering the fortress of the king. Of the north, and this is in reference to uh, Bernice's brother. And so, if you look at um, if you're looking at your your handout and you're tracing the line of the Ptolemies, if you look at uh, Ptolemy the third, Euergetes, um, and then you have kind of a, a horizontal dash there uh, between them and Bernice. That uh, that indicates that uh, that those are those are brother and sister there. And so, Ptolemy the third seems to be this this branch of her roots described there in verse seven who arises and comes and enters the fortress of the king of the north after succeeding his father, Ptolemy II. And so uh, Ptolemy III then responds to the fact that his sister Bernice had been murdered, and he responds by attacking the the Seleucid kingdom, capturing and killing uh, Laodicea, the first wife of Antiochus II. And then verse 9 speaks of the king of the north attacking the king of the south, which is exactly what Laodicea's son, Seleucus II Chalcinus, does in 242 
B.C. He's unsuccessful in the attack and returns to his own land. And uh, Seleucus's sons then carry on the struggle against Egypt. And so if you're, uh, if you're looking at the, the Seleucid line there, you've got Seleucid, uh, Seleucus II Calcinus, uh, who reigns from 246 to 226. And then down below, you've got his two sons, uh, Seleucus Serenus and uh, Antiochus the Great. Um, those are our two brothers, and they carry on the, uh, the struggle against Egypt and are attacking, uh, at that point, Ptolemy IV down in Egypt. And uh, the big battle there is at a place called Raphia in 217 BC. Antiochus III suffers a humiliating defeat. And thus, according to verse 12, his heart, that is the heart of Ptolemy IV, was lifted up, but yet he did not prevail. So Ptolemy IV has a victory at Raphia in 217 BC and is lifted up, but he's not going to prevail because Antiochus III is not quite done yet. There's still more fighting to come. Verses 13 and following, we uh, start to see somewhat of a shift in power. Up to this point, it seemed like uh, the king of Egypt, the kings of the south, had been more or less on top, kind of running the show And now things start to shift such that the Seleucids gain the upper hand of the situation. And so uh, Antiochus III invades Egypt again in 202 B.C., capitalizing on the death of Ptolemy IV in 203 B.C. And the young ruler, Ptolemy V, was only four or five years old at that time. And eventually the Egyptian general Scopus retreated with his forces to Sidon on the coast where they are besieged by the army of Antiochus III and the Egyptians surrendered in 198 B.C. And it's possible that uh, verse 15 is describing uh, that surrender there at, uh, at Sidon, this, uh, the king of the north coming, casting up a siege ramp, capturing a well-fortified city and the forces of the south not being able to stand their ground, not even their choicest troops. And... Uh, part of Antiochus III's proposal of peace after this was to have his daughter Cleopatra. This is not the Cleopatra of later Roman history of uh, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and all that. This is not this is not that Cleopatra, but a different one. Um, Antiochus uh, III proposes that his daughter Cleopatra marry Ptolemy V of Egypt, but uh, as these things often go, the marriage alliance didn't prove to be all that. Antiochus III had in mind, verse 17 says that she will not take a stand or be on his side. Apparently Antiochus III thought, if I get my daughter to marry Ptolemy, this will, this will kind of work to my advantage, but she marries Ptolemy and uh, seems to be more on her husband's side than on her father's side. And so... In uh, verse 18, we have Antiochus turning his face toward the coastlands to capture many, but a commander puts his stop, uh, a stop to the scorn and repays him. And then in verse 19, he turns his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he stumbles and falls and is found no more. And these events seem to have played out in the life of Antiochus III uh, in that he turned his attention to the countries and islands around the Mediterranean, And after some success, he invaded Greece, but uh, was sent packing back to Asia Minor after being defeated by the Romans at the Battle of Thermopylae in 191 B.C. 
And then after that, the army of the Romans pursued him into Asia Minor and defeated him again at the Battle of Magnesia in 190 B.C. And a couple years later, he signs a treaty with Rome that required him to to pay a compensation uh, to Rome and to make the payments. He robbed the temple of Zeus at Elamis, and the locals apparently didn't like him robbing their temple, and so they killed him. And that seems to be what's borne out there in the words of verse 19. He will stumble and fall and be found no more. And then after Antiochus III comes his son. And so we've got the, if you're looking at uh, kings of the south, Antiochus III, you can see the down arrow from, from him indicating uh, his, uh, his sons uh, down there. And so you can see his, his three children, uh, the Fourth. And then we've got Antiochus Epiphanes, and then their sister was the, was the Cleopatra, whom we had just spoken of. And um, so Eusus IV, according to verse 20 of the text, is said, to, said that he will send an oppressor or an exactor to the jewel of his kingdom, possibly to Jerusalem. And it seems that historically this took the form of Seleucus IV sending a man named Heliodorus to Jerusalem with the intention of robbing the temple treasury. There had been, uh, had been some reports that the king had received that, uh, that the, the temple treasury has this money that we can, we can pass on to you. And uh, Second, Second Maccabees chapter 3 gives, gives the history of this man, Heliodorus, and him coming to the temple and uh, being uh, confronted with... Uh, it's, Second Maccabees 3 says that there appeared to them a horse that struck at him with his hooves, and two young men appeared, remarkably strong, gloriously beautiful, and splendidly dressed, who stood on either side of him and flogged him continuously, inflicting many blows on him. And so Heliodorus was kind of thwarted in his attempt to plunder the temple, and this same Heliodorus apparently uh, eventually goes on to poison his king, so uses the fourth in uh, the words of Verse 20 seemed to be borne out there that so Eusus IV was shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. And then in his place, verse 21, comes the despicable person. This is Antiochus IV, Seleucus IV's younger brother. And uh, the career of Antiochus IV is sketched out from verse 21 down to verse 35. And, uh, but before we, before we talk about Antiochus the fourth epiphanies. Let me let's just kind of let's just kind of step back. I realize that was a lot of kind of ancient history in just a, just a few minutes, and most of us, myself included, are not not great experts on that period of time. But uh, one one lesson that I think we can we can glean from from this succession of, of kingdoms in in Daniel eleven, and this is this is not original to me. Um, but one of, the, one of the lessons that I think we can learn from this is that political and military goals often go awry and that God's sovereign purposes are what uh, prevail. Um, I'm going to give this quote from commentator Dale Ralph Davis and uh, just, just, look through, just look through the text as, as he marches through this and you'll see how often somebody had this great plan of what they were going to do, and the plan falls apart and comes to nothing. So beginning in verse 4, his kingdom shall be broken and divided. 
the RF Davis says, no sooner does Alexander amass his empire than it will be splintered. Verse 6b, she will not hold on to the strength of her arm, but she will be given over. The alliance forged through Bernice's marriage to Antiochus II will not succeed. Verse 9, he shall return to his own land. About 242, 240 B.C., Seleucus II, king of the north, invaded Egypt, but being defeated, had to return to Syria. Verse 11b, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. Raising a great multitude seems to have been the work of Antiochus III, the king of the north. Polybius says Antiochus's army at Raphia consisted of 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants, a formidable force but given over to Ptolemy IV. Verse 12b, he will not remain strong. After Ptolemy IV's smashing victory at Raphia, his power will evaporate. No surprise, considering his passionate commitment to dissipation. Verse 14b, violent ones among your own people will assert themselves to fulfill a vision, but they will fail. Expositors puzzle over this cryptic remark. Apparently, some Israelite thugs tie their forces either to Antiochus III or to the Egyptians and find that their hot-headed zeal comes to nothing. Verse 17b, the daughter of women will be given to destroy him, but it will not stand and will not prove to his advantage. Antiochus III gave his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V in order to undercut the latter, but she seemed genuinely to love her husband and all things Egyptian, and so Antiochus' scheme fell to pieces. Verse 18b, but a commander shall put an end to his arrogance. Antiochus III enjoys successful conquests of the Mediterranean islands and coastlands, but the Roman consul Scipio inflicts a crushing defeat on him at Magnesia with a crippling indemnity payable to Rome. Verse 19b, but he shall stumble and fall and will not be found. After his reverse at Magnesia, and humiliating treaty of Apamia, Antiochus III can only venture to the east, but this is short-lived. He's cut down while robbing a temple, seeking funds in order to pay off Rome. Verse 20b, but within a few days he will be broken, but not in anger or battle. So Eusus IV succeeds his father Antiochus III, but eventually enters the royal landfill when his head revenue collector poisons him. So you can, you can see the point that, that Dale Ralph Davis is, is making is that, that all of these commanders, kings, generals, and so on, they have their, they have their plans. They're seeking to, to make advances and to establish their kingdoms and all of this, but it doesn't last. Their plans are undone. It seems to be a, an outworking of Habakkuk 2.13. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that the peoples toil for fire and the nations grow weary for nothing? It's all of this activity, but the goal is never reached. Or consider Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. And that should be, that should be a comfort to us because sometimes we, uh, we see people plotting and planning of what they're, what they're going to do and and we catch a whiff of it, and we think, oh, wow, if, if they succeed on this, if they make good on what they're trying to do, this could go down really bad for me and for a lot of other people. But ultimately, it's not the technocrats or the politicians or the generals who are 
commanding the flow of history. Ultimately, it is God who is doing that. It's not to say that things won't get really bad sometime. They might get really bad. But it is a comfort to us that they're not ultimately the ones who are pulling the strings and that ultimately only the purposes of God will stand. And that should encourage us to trust God and stay the course even in the darkest and most bleak of times. So any, any questions or comments before we, before we get on to uh, the prophecy concerning Antiochus Epiphanes there in 21 through 35? Right? Yeah. What is the, what's the literal position as far as where this came from? So I think um, as far as like liberal... Liberal scholars on the book of Daniel. Yeah, I think I think what they would try to do is they would try to make a late a late date for the book of Daniel, and and say that that um, that, that Daniel was written post these events. I, I think that's what they would try to do. Mm, yeah, I don't. I don't. Yeah, because I think now I don't. I, I haven't. I haven't studied liberal commentators on Daniel to to great extent. But I remember. I remember once hearing uh, hearing Shane talk about a conversation that 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 he was having with someone related to related to the to the book of Daniel, and and I think he he made a he made a, an interesting point in in the discussion that. Um, that you know that they were they were saying well this, the, the book of Daniel was 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 written later and Shane was like oh okay and and so and so Shane was was trying to, to argue with the person that, that basically what what you're saying is that if we if we've got the uh, the if the text of Daniel comes later then we actually almost have the autograph of of the book of Daniel is is that what you're saying just in terms of in terms of the age of the manuscripts because if 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 Daniel comes after Antiochus in, in 163, in terms of like the age of, of Hebrew manuscripts or, or uh, those, those kinds of things that you could, uh, you could almost try to, try to make that argument. And, and, um, and I, don't think, I don't think that would really work because, um, because you've got a, a Septuagint version of the book of Daniel. The Septuagint is translated in like two, the, the 200s BC sometimes. So sometime when all of this stuff is... Is uh, still a hundred years from all taking place. You have the, the Septuagint translated from Hebrew into Greek, and and so it, it does seem like a huge problem for the liberal position. And and I I think that's probably what they would what they would have to do. I don't like I say I haven't I haven't studied liberal commentators on that uh, on that point, but that it is a. Yeah. Specific and very close to yeah. other right. things where the actual dates are known for how old things are. So right, right. Really yeah, I, I agree. And, okay, so it really is a problem. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 is, like, it really is a problem. I, I, would, I would think it would be. I don't know, like I say, I, I'm not familiar enough to, to know exactly how they would, how they would want to do it. But, but I would say, though, in, in terms of looking at conservative commentators, kind of, it seems that across the board, depend, uh, regardless of one's eschatological positions or, or whatever, it seems that across the board, everybody pretty pretty much agrees that that this is this is what's happening here. Yeah, yeah. And so, 
Uh, but but yeah, I, I do agree it does it does create a problem for uh, for the rejection of prophecy. And I'm not sure I'm not sure what the most uh, persuasive argument they would field against against it would be. That's, yeah, I don't know. Um, any anything else, Jamie? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good good point. We uh, um, half of our uh, troubles come from worries that never materialize, right? We uh, we can get so worked up about all of these things and, and fear all of these things, and um, you know sometimes sometimes we we might be right, but often often we're we're very wrong, and so yeah, it's uh, much more uh, much more godly just to. Just trust God and keep on keep on moving, and uh, not get not get too worked up about the details. Yeah, yeah, and I would, uh, and and to that to that point, I would just uh, I would just uh, direct us all to Psalm thirty-seven. I think I think Psalm thirty-seven is is excellent in terms of uh, in terms of speaking to this, and so uh, just the uh, the opening uh, the opening few verses there of Psalm thirty-seven kind of speak kind of right to this this thing. Uh, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will quickly wither. Uh, like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in the way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And I think that's just a, a remarkable text to uh, remind us that not to worry, not to fear, but ultimately to trust the Lord. It's not to say that Nothing that evildoers do 
should be concerning. We should be concerned about evil that we see and seek uh, in the appropriate time and place and sphere to, to counteract that evil uh, or do good. But, uh, but ultimately, we're supposed to be trusting in the Lord, doing good, dwelling in the land, cultivating faithfulness, delighting ourselves in the Lord, committing our way to the Lord rather than, than worrying. And it's, it's interesting that he says, do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. If we're constantly worked up and hyped up about the world, it's going to lead us to sin. And so, uh, so yeah, point, point well made, Ray. Thank you. Um, anything, anything else before we, uh, before we look a little bit at uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 21 and following? Anything else? Yeah, Stan. Oh yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think it plays a plays a great position. And so, and so when uh, when when I advocate not fretting because of evil, I'm not saying disengage. Um, obviously, we we do need to be engaged, and uh, for for most of us, at the very least, that means that means voting um, and kind of looking at looking at the ballot box, looking at looking at the choices, looking at. Uh, looking at policies, what's uh, what? Are the, what do these people stand for? What are they? What are they going to do in the land? And then, obviously, um, we don't have anybody in our congregation who's a judge. But if they were a judge, they better be judging according to uh, according to, to truth and, and righteousness in their position on the bench. And uh, the same applies for uh, for police officers and so on. They, they better be uh, seeking to do truth and. And, and righteousness in in their day to day day to day dealings and um, yeah and I, I think uh, I think as we kind of move on uh, you know in, in future weeks we'll we'll have we'll have some opportunity to to kind of consider uh, kind of when when push comes to shove what what do we do because we'll see uh, we'll see some who were who were martyrs we'll see some who stood up and fought and we'll uh, we'll when we you know, in future weeks, we'll, Lord willing, get a chance to to kind of weigh weigh those uh, courses of action and uh, consider consider what's what's good and godly in those in those places. Does that does that help, Stan? Or okay, um, anything anything else? All right. So, um, verse uh, verse twenty one uh, down through thirty five is uh, for. The people of Israel in the kind of the intertestamental period. This is this is the darkest of their times, and it might even be the darkest time in the life of the nation of Israel. Kind of kind of leading up to this point, depending on depending on how you want to slice and dice everything. Part of the issue here is that is that Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't simply destroy the temple. He doesn't, he doesn't destroy it. He uh, transforms it into a place of idolatry, and he seeks to, to clamp down on uh, the possession of the, the Old Testament scriptures and uh, the, the practice of circumcision. And, um, and so you, you have kind of this, this crisis that, that really has, has never come, at least since, I would say, the days of the, days of the Exodus, because because even even when the Babylonians came, they weren't they weren't demanding that the Jews no longer circumcise their children or that they uh, you know couldn't 
carry away a scroll of the Torah with them. At least as far as I know, the Babylonians didn't do that. And, uh, and so you have this kind of this pinnacle of a crisis going on here. And so we're told about this despicable person. And verse 21 uh, says of him that, uh, that the honor of kingship has not been conferred. He will come at a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And, uh, and so he's usually known as Antiochus Epiphanes, but he was referred to as some as Antiochus Epimanes. Epimanes means madman. And uh, the text says that the honor of kingship was not conferred on him. And so, uh, so if we think back to some of the history that we walked through, Alex, uh, Antiochus III, who's Antiochus IV's father, um, dies in that raid on the Temple of Zeus so that he could pay the Romans. His son, Seleucus IV, uh, becomes king. As we said, Seleucus IV is poisoned by his tax collector. Apparently, at least some sources say it was that Heliodorus who had tried to uh, come to the temple, as recorded in 2 Maccabees 3. But, uh, and so Seleucus IV gets poisoned, and technically at that point, Seleucus IV's son, Demetrius, should have become king of the, uh, of the north, the king of, of the Seleucid Empire. But unfortunately for Demetrius, he was being held hostage in Rome at that point. And so uh, the rightful heir being held hostage... Antiochus IV, who is the, the brother of the now-deceased king, uncle of the rightful king, worms his way into power. doesn't seem like this is, this is kind of a common thread, right? Where you have a king die and a rightful heir, and then the brother kind of steps in. If you're familiar with, uh, with Prince Caspian, isn't that, uh, isn't that the, the way it worked? You have Miraz as, uh, as Caspian's uncle. He kind of steps in uh, where he's not the rightful king, but he claims the kingship. Same kind of dynamic, it seems, uh, going on going on here. And so uh, verses 22 and 23 are variously explained sometimes as a war in 169 between Ptolemy VI and Antiochus IV, and that war is also recounted in verses 25 through 27, and there's different theories on who this prince of the covenant is, whether it's, uh, whether it's one of the kings or, or Onius, who is a Jewish priest at this time. Um, I appreciate the candid remark of one commentator who said, one cannot be dogmatic. I do not know what the reference is. <laughs> and so, um, so there's, there's various theories as to who that Prince of the Covenant is. But verse 24 seems to be uh, in reference to the way uh, that Antiochus is, uh, is, is plundering and the way that he gives rewards from the plunder to his followers. And uh, again, verses 25 through 27 are seen of, as this description of events in 169 B.C. Uh, and following when Ptolemy VI and Antiochus uh, go at it, and there's a war that's instigated when Ptolemy tries to regain uh, Palestine and Phoenicia from Syria and kind of reincorporate that into the Egyptian kingdom. Ptolemy gets captured and subsequently enters into Antiochus's effort or uh, comes into some agreement with Antiochus in an effort to retake the throne of Egypt. As he had been away on, uh, on this campaign, Ptolemy's younger brother steps in and took control of Egypt. And so now Antiochus and Ptolemy VI are teaming up to try to retake Egypt. Uh, but then, after that, he 
double crosses, Antiochus and the two Ptolemy brothers, Ptolemy VI, Ptolemy VII, are allied together to uh, get the Syrian troops out of Egypt. And so you have this language in verse 27 about these kings speaking deceitfully to one another at the same table. And uh, you certainly have plenty of of double-crossing going on there between uh, Ptolemy VI and Antiochus IV. And then in verse 28, we're told about how Antiochus returned to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. And so this, this comes after his campaign into Egypt in 169 B.C. As he is returning back up north, he goes through Palestine, puts down a rebellion, and plunders the temple with the aid of the high priest at that time, whose name was Menelaus. And then verses 29 and 30 speak of another foray of Antiochus into Egypt in 168 B.C. But the text prophetically points out this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. And the reason was, was that at the request of the Ptolemies, the, the Romans showed up. And the Roman commander met Antiochus and handed him a letter from Rome that said he must either withdraw from Egypt or that the Romans would be at war with him. And so under those conditions, he withdrew disheartened. And then he subsequently drops the hammer on the Israelites and, again, forbids uh, circumcision, forbids the keeping of the Sabbath, uh, forbids the sacrifices, forbids the possession of Scripture, and then this culminates in the desecration of the temple with an erection of an idol of Zeus in the temple on the 15th of Kislev in 167 B.C. And that's, that's the abomination of desolation spoken of there in verse 31. And so he does his best to force the Jews into apostasy. And many of them do commit apostasy, and we'll, Lord willing, see that as we go along. But the message given to Daniel in verse 32 is quite, quite helpful, where we're told, verse 32, that the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And I think, um, I think that kind of ties in with, uh, with what Stan's question was earlier uh, about those who, who know their God will will display strength and take action. And so uh, we'll, we'll talk some. Uh, I hope, hope as, we, as we go along to come back here to, to verse 32 and, and uh, consider some of the ways that this was, that this was worked out, how the people uh, displayed strength and, and took action. And uh, we're told, though, in verse 35 that this was ultimately to refine and purge and make them pure. Ultimately, this testing period that came upon Israel was to have a purifying effect on them. And uh, the, uh, the reference there to many joining uh, them in their hypocrisy uh, seems to be a reference uh, to perhaps the Jews who joined in the Maccabean revolt from a standpoint more of expediency than of religious conviction. And, um, and, so, and so you have a mixed bag. You have some, uh, some Jews who were willing to commit apostasy and basically go over to, uh, to the Greek way of thinking, and you have uh, the Maccabeans who uh, took their faith very seriously and revolted against the powers of be so that they could practice their faith and obey God, 
And then you may have some who just kind of, from the standpoint of expediency, political expediency, if you will, joined with the Maccabeans but weren't, uh, weren't really all in, so to speak, in terms of, in terms of having, having hearts that uh, wanted to, uh, to love and worship God. So uh, with that, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and call it quits here, and, and we'll try to, uh, try to get more into the, the texts of, of 1st and 2nd Maccabees next week, Lord willing. So uh, with that, let me, let me close for us in prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we ask that you would help us at all times, in good times and in bad, that we would display strength and that we would take action, appropriate action and godly action under any and every circumstances. Lord, we, uh, we praise you for, uh, for calling us. We thank you that, uh, that we do not need to, to fear and worry about those who do evil, as we saw from Psalm 37. But Lord, we do ask that you would help us to, to know the times and to act appropriately and wisely and that we would always uh, seek your glory in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.